I often get this question, how do you find inspiration? I think for the most part, we feel that inspiration is something that happens to us. You might be in a beautiful place, like here in Colorado in the mountains, and some spark of imagination or creativity or an idea just spontaneously descends on a person. But the artists I work with sometimes find it frustrating that they can't just access it when they need it. Not just artists, any, any worker, any, any creative person. And so what do you do? And so what I've noticed is that if you have a craft like music and you spend all of your time doing different things and then you come to your instrument or you come to your pen or you come to the canvas and then you want that inspiration to just suddenly manifest, it may not because the rest of our time is spent practicing being uninspired. So I think for me, and this, these kind of events help me to integrate my music and and everything that I've learned from art into daily living. So without realizing it, we're missing opportunities to be inspired by thinking, this is my creative time, and this is my work, and I hate my job, or I don't like when I'm with these people. And then we're practicing all day long being turned off. If you look at this word inspiration, it has etymological roots in Latin, inspirare, which meant to draw in the breath of God. And inspirare is talked about in the Old Testament, I think, when God creates human beings and breathes into the nostrils to animate them. So it evolved to mean animation from some kind of magical breath. And this is why inspiration is so close phonetically to respiration. They share this root word spiritus in Latin, which meant breath. The way I interpret this now is that if you're conscious of your breathing, you're receptive to inspiration. That's the best we can do to access it, to just create the openness. And we can do it through breathing. That's why I called this the breath of inspiration. When you're breathing consciously or through your own volition, something changes in the brain. When we're unconscious of our breathing, it's involuntary and it's regulated by the medulla in the brainstem. Now, among all the visceral processes in the body, like digestion, circulation, endocrine functioning, and so on, respiration is unique because it has a dual network for operation. If we're not paying attention, it'll happen involuntarily. The moment we're conscious and choose how we want to breathe, that part of the brain shuts off and some higher activity in the upper cortex takes over. And there must be a reason why we have this dual mechanism for breathing. And I think it does tie back to being plugged in, being able to create a receptive mind. From that root of inspiration, as far as Western philosophy goes, creative people have said that inspiration comes from muses. So the word muse is also interesting. Muse meant literally to stand with your nose in the air. <laughs> to try to catch a lost scent like a dog. And that's why we have the word muzzle for a dog. It comes from muse. Like who would have thought that muse meant that? And, and so the mythology in, uh, in Greece built around this concept for thousands of years. Creative people thought that 
all their inspiration came from one of nine divine muses. The chief muse was Calliope, and she was the goddess of eloquence and epic poetry. And you would need to pray to one of these muses to access their favor, to be good at whatever it is that your craft was, whether it was poetry or painting or music or astronomy. There was a muse for all of these different arts and sciences. But where did these muses come from? This story is kind of interesting too. The king of the gods in Greek mythology, Zeus, had just won this long battle against the Titans. And he thought, you know, even though he's an immortal, maybe some of my feats on the battlefield will be forgotten. And so he devised a way to make sure that he would never be forgotten. What a narcissist Zeus was. He shapeshifted into a shepherd mortal and slept with the goddess Namasani. Namasani was the titan goddess of memory. And I think there's a lot of metaphor in this, in this masculine and feminine play between Zeus and Namasani. It's interesting that the, this goddess of memory is largely forgotten today. <laughs> but at the time, she was one of the most powerful goddesses in that mythology. There's something, I think, magical about the idea of God and memory coming together. So God being this creative masculine power and then needing to merge with memory to bring out these nine muses. So they slept together nine nights in a row and months later, Namasani gave birth on nine consecutive days to the muses, which were responsible for all creativity in that mythology. So that's how they came into creation. I guess maybe there's something feminine about memory, but you need memory to create something new. Stravinsky said once that, have I not just come here to refit old ships? Isn't that the task of the artist? Meaning you take something that's already existed and you make something new. Now I think we understand creativity to have two qualities, novelty, meaning you're reshaping the old into something novel, and usefulness. And this has been an inspiration to me to think about whatever gifts I have, whatever interests I have, but not just to be odd with it all, to find some way to bring those gifts and those innovations in, into a platform or into a medium that can benefit people's lives. If you don't have these in some kind of right balance, then people might not agree that this is creative. Charles Mingus, uh, a wonderful bass player in the bebop era of jazz, said something like, anybody can be weird. And he was very weird. But he said, anybody can be weird. It's very hard to be simple. To be simple and whatever that simple thing is to really move people. That's where the spark is in, in creativity. So anyways, Namasani, this goddess that presided over memory, was important also when people died. They thought that the soul would then go to this place in another dimension where they'd have two choices. They could drink from the river of Lethe, who is a, the goddess of forgetfulness or the goddess of oblivion. But what was enticing about that for anybody after death was that 
she'll wipe out all of your pain, all of your regrets, and all of your fears and terror. And so that's a pretty good deal. So most people choose that. But the alternative is to drink from the spring of Namasani, which is going to give that person complete recollection of everything. So it will fully restore the memory of all of their lives. If they choose this, they would go to the Elysian fields, which is basically heaven, I guess. And if you drink from the river of Lethe, you're reborn and you don't remember your past life. So this was the explanation of how the soul kept transmigrating from life after life, but had no clue how it got there and why the human species has amnesia. This is fun because when I study different philosophical traditions like Buddhism believes in reincarnation, Hinduism believes in reincarnation, I spend a lot of time in India. It's a curious thing. If there was reincarnation, why does nobody remember the last life? I mean, some people maybe they do, but for the most part, we're mired in forgetfulness. So this was their explanation. In psychology, they've only recently, scientists have only recently tried to put this puzzle together. What, it, what is inspiration? Where does it happen in the brain? What are the characteristics of the inspired? And a couple psychologists named um, Thrash and Elliot developed an inspiration scale. And in the last number of years, they've really been thoroughly trying to understand what it is. And they've highlighted this tripartite of conception, which means there's three, three aspects of being inspired. The first one is called evocation. That is the moment when a person goes, oh, something happens. They see something or they dream something or there's a flash that sparks something inside of them. The second part of this is transcendence, which means a person is taken out of their ordinary awareness, not worried about work or relationships. In that moment, there's something beyond all of that, beyond their ordinary experience. And then the third part is actualization. So whatever that spark was that led to something higher up here, then there's this motivation to bring it back into this world, into the physical world. And when those three things come together, from inspired by to inspired to, you have the full arc of inspiration. And they developed this scale called the inspiration scale, and they started studying all these different kinds of creative people. And they found a number of qualities, and I, I just want to highlight a few for you all, because I think that we'll get some inspiration from these qualities of the inspired people. The first one is openness, which simply means this quality of mindfulness, that people who are more inspired than others are just simply neutral in their outlook. They just have this kind of way of seeing life, sort of like when you're watching a TV show and you're just totally into it, or you're watching a movie and you're totally into it. You don't want to rewind it. You don't want to fast forward. You don't want somebody to tell you what happens. When you're just fully there and present, that's mindfulness. Imagine being like that with life. Constantly in life, we're like, what's going to happen? Like right now, we're all like, what's going to happen? And we're always looking ahead or we're fixated or worried or uh, ruminating about what we regret. But in a movie, you don't care about any of that. Later on, you'll decide whether or not it was good or not. And if somebody nudged you and go, if you're wondering what happens, he dies at the end. You'd be like pissed off. Like, what are you doing? 
You just ruined it for me. And so that's what openness means. Openness means you're just letting the tape roll of your life. It's a quality of mindfulness that we can actually practice. We can even set aside times to be open if this is totally novel to us. We can say like, you know, it's seven o'clock, I have my open time. I just sit and I experience everything that's happening right now. So let's do that together, if you don't mind. If you, if you could sit straight for a moment in your chair. I just want to guide you in, in open awareness with our breathing. So if you close your eyes, if you feel comfortable, and direct your attention to breathing. If you get distracted, just redirect your awareness whenever you realize you're distracted. Okay, so here's the, the key. While you're watching your breath with your mind, don't change anything. Don't do anything. But notice a few things. Notice what it feels like to have air flowing in and out. Notice what it feels like to have your body expand and contract, however it naturally does. Notice the sound of breathing, which will be easier in a silent space, but try to listen. Listen like you're listening to the ocean. Incoming breath like an incoming wave. Outgoing breath like an outgoing wave. And then lastly, notice that it might feel good to breathe. And then you can gradually resume your normal awareness and then when you feel ready, you can open your eyes, come back to the room. So that's an example of the link between breath and inspiration. So now when you breathe in this way, it's not just inhalation, it's inspiration. And all the studies of meditation show that when the brain goes into a slower wave pattern, gamma waves, then there will be these sparks of synchrony which will then create new pathways in the brain and people can see things differently. These once obscure trails now become roads and people can solve problems and find new ways to make their lives better, or to make their lives more successful. So that's a little bit about openness. The next one, people who had high levels of inspiration are not very conscientious of inspiration, meaning they're not actively chasing the muse artists tend to do. The idea here is that there's a paradox in psychology of performance anxiety. When you're trying to do something, it actually becomes more of a struggle. So trying to get inspired would probably make, just make a person more frustrated. Have you ever tried to fall asleep and find that it's harder and harder to just keep looking at the clock and counting the hours? So sometimes I tell people who have insomnia, just do not keep track of time. If you wake up or you're awake, have no clue what time it is until you fall asleep again. Because by seeing that you're, you have less and less time, it will increase anxiety. 
And when people are trying to stay awake, they fall asleep. So the same is true with inspiration, which supports the theory that inspiration is something that happens to us, not something we can just go out and get. All we can do is be receptive. So the openness meant people were receptive. The second one, they're not really chasing it. Third one, this is interesting. People who are inspired are less competitive. The logic here is that when you become competitive and think, I need my inspiration so I can get better at this thing, so I can be better than my peers, it removes the transcendent part. So remember that arc of evocation, transcendence, and actualization. If you're worried about being better than others or keeping up or standing out amongst your contemporaries or jealous, well, then you've lost the transcendence. The transcendence goes beyond all of that. So that will quickly bring a person back down from wherever it is that people connect these stars, these constellations. And then there's a couple others. One is intrinsic motivation. So people who are more inspired already have their values a little bit clarified, I think. They don't need external validation to keep cultivating whatever it is they're doing. I think we're conditioned culturally to, to look for some reinforcement externally, some external validation. Is this any good? Do people like what I'm doing? Will I be able to sell these photographs that I'm taking? If not, then people lose their inspiration, right? But when that doesn't matter, all that matters is this last one, an aspiration to improve. I mean, just, it's such a simple thing that to just want to get better, to just want to be a better human being, to want today not just to be a repetition of yesterday, but even if in some small way I can refine whatever it is I'm doing with my life to tweak the dials just a little bit every day. This is the magic of an artist. You hear a song or you see the painting and that's all we get as the audience. We just see the final work and we go, that's unbelievable or that's so awesome that a person can do that. But what we miss is the step-by-step -step process that leads a musician to a completed song. And every day it's like just a stroke, just a stroke. And when you connect all those dots together, you get the final work. But the artist hides all of that and just shows the final piece. And so we look at it with awe. And so those are the five qualities that, five among many that I thought were relevant for in people who have high levels of inspiration. When people grow this type of understanding or connection to inspiration, then there's a bunch of benefits. But here are some that I think are relevant. The first one is that a person becomes more creative. So I said before, creativity is novelty plus usefulness. There was a quantum physicist that I really liked when I was studying neuroscience in college. I had a professor who was a student and contemporary of this quantum physicist, David Bohm who was a successor to Einstein. And it was really special for me to touch this scientific lineage for a moment. Anyways, David Bohm talked about the reality of the universe in terms of necessity and contingency. So that some things are necessity, but maybe everything that's happening is necessity. We have this sense that things could have been otherwise. 
But him and Einstein had this notion that everything already is. Our memory, like we talked about earlier, gives us the sense that things are happening. But nobody really agrees on when things happen. Like, for example, if there were people on a distant planet, on a different, different solar system, with a powerful enough telescope to look at us, well, they wouldn't see us. They would see whatever's happening millions of years ago, because that's how long the light would take to go show them. But that would be now for them. So anyways, we talked about necessity and contingency. But I stole this and I applied it to creativity and to art. I thought, in music, there are some songs that I feel are more necessity. Like I think of like a Tom Petty song. When I hear something like, I don't know, like American Girl, it's almost like there's no other way that could be. And in the documentary about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers running down a dream, I think it was Rick Rubin, one of his producers, said Tom could just close his eyes and go out there and come back with the whole thing. He caught hold of something. And it really sounds like you can't do it any better. I mean, you could play it louder or slower or faster or whatever, but that melody, if you changed one note in that melody, wouldn't be quite as perfect. And then there's contingency, which means you can sit at a piano and just start connecting notes and you can make a melody, but it could be all different kinds of ways. That's what Bohm was talking about, and that's what I talk about in terms of craft. Craft it, refine it, refine it until you feel like this is, this is the way it was always meant to be. I think of Michelangelo carving the David. What he's actually doing is he's chipping away everything that's not David. I mean, think about that. He doesn't add anything he takes away or any sculptor. And life is sort of like that when you're aspiring to improve. You're chipping away. You're shedding. The spiritual life also, in my time studying with meditation masters, I realized that it's not about acquiring anything. To acquire more, I don't know, more insight, more power, supernatural gifts. But I came away realizing that I lost things. I lost my anxiety. I lost some of my anger. Uh, some of my doubt. What we all have is different types of mental strains. And so it's, it's more about shedding. And then the next one is flow. So when people become more creative, they can get into this flow state. Flow state is like a meditative state. It's like watching a movie where you're no longer burdened by time. So when a person's in flow, they don't know how much time's passed. I had these experiences growing up playing the guitar. I'd be playing something, and all of a sudden my mom would like kind of snap me out of my practice, saying, you're playing that thing over and over for like several hours, and you haven't eaten or gone to the bathroom. So I was in flow, you know, which I think was my earliest exper experiments with meditation, was music could take me into that place. And then flow leads to mastery of a craft. I think there's a, a, a direct correlation between how much a person goes into flow and what they can accomplish with whatever it is they're doing. The last few are self-esteem goes up. I think this is a real issue for people in modern society. When I meet with adolescents, they, they hate themselves. They don't know what their purpose is. 
it's very painful, I think, to be young and to not know what you're here to do, but to see other people very skilled at things. And sometimes some young people can catch fire with an idea on YouTube or on Instagram or something like that. And that's just not going to happen for everybody. Like for every one young person that is thriving with an Instagram account or ads on their YouTube channel, 99 others have no clue what they're supposed to do and are lonely and are anxious and are avoidant. And when people ask me, how do you find your purpose? It's the same with inspiration. You'll not find your purpose. I mean, how could I know part of my purpose was having a podcast? Podcast didn't exist when I was in college. I don't know what else will come that will fit into what I'm here to do. But I do know this, if you live each day purposefully, all of a sudden you might pause and go, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And so that's the best I can do for people is to tell them, live now, live purposefully, and the pieces will start to fit together. And then the last one is optimism. Now naturally, if a person is receptive enough to see that inspiration is available and they, they receive it, then you start to feel like there's meaning. And when you have a sense of meaning and direction, then some of our pessimism gets shed. We're all wired to be pessimistic without realizing it because that kept humans alive through evolution. To see, uh, to think positively probably was not helpful at all. Just to worry and, and be able to imagine all the things that could go wrong and be afraid of all that probably help people live long enough to have offspring. The last thing I want to share with you, if any of this resonates with you, we need to guide our brains in neuroplasticity. So we now know scientifically that the brain just keeps changing depending on what we pay attention to. A study in London of cab drivers revealed that they had a hippocampus that's 25% larger than the average brain because they have to memorize every street in the city before they could get certified historically. And, and so the researchers realized that if you keep paying attention in that way, this memory center will grow. This is also true for musicians. The more I play the instrument, the more my motor cortex, which controls my left hand, expands so that moving my fingers across the fretboard gets easier and easier and easier. And when I would teach students and they would tell me, I'm not wired for this, it hurts, and you're not wired for it yet. Keep paying attention and your brain will adapt so that it becomes easier. But there are some things that we can do to support the neuroplasticity of the brain in such a way that we can access uh, inspiration more. The first one is non-judgment. People don't realize how judgmental they are of themselves, of others, their life, and different situations. And even when you know judgment isn't so good for you, it still happens. So I invite you to do this kind of practice in mindfulness, to recognize that a judgment comes. You might walk into a room and, and without even realizing it, we're already going, I don't like that person, I don't like what he's wearing, I don't like the way this person's talking to this person. I don't like our waiter. I mean, our mind is just judging, like all the time. But if you can realize it, if you can become aware of it, treat it like this. The first one that comes is just cultural conditioning. It's just coming out of my memory bank. So if it's a prejudice, it's just coming from somewhere in culture. Just notice it and don't judge that. 
Then with your next thought, redirect to your values. Well, my value is equality, so this, this thought really means nothing to me. So all you have to do is stop believing everything you think, and then judgment won't have so much power over you. So that's the first one. But that will grow the brain in surprising ways, just practicing non-judgment. The most important part of the brain that this is all going to grow is the prefrontal cortex, the last part of the brain to develop, which is involved in all inspiration. In a study of patients having surgery for seizure disorders, scientists have recently been able to use some microscopic technology to track a thought in the brain from inspiration to actualization. And it always goes to the prefrontal cortex before it goes to the motor cortex to make something happen, like a drawing, like writing something. And so if this prefrontal cortex isn't in good shape, it gets harder and harder to be creative. And unfortunately, after it develops at 25, 26 years old, it starts to decline. But non-judgment will preserve it and rebuild it. And so the second one, meditation. In an eight-week study of people learning to meditate for the first time, some Harvard scientists measured the prefrontal cortex, the volume of gray matter, upon entering them into this experiment, and then eight weeks later. And they found that this region of the brain increased its gray matter. And for meditators who meditate their whole life, we don't see in these MRI studies a natural age-related cortical decline in that part of the brain. The next one that people can do is read. When you read, you form new connections in the brain and expands the brain. It gives you more aha moments. The insight is not the same as inspiration, but insight changes the brain in such a way that prepares one for inspiration. And then exercise, because moving our bodies has been shown to enhance neuroplasticity. And then the last one is a specific kind of exercise, dancing. Dancing has been shown to ward off aging in the brain more than anything else. Isn't that interesting? Because of the combination of movement and cognition, to learn a dance, to improvise. And so there's a saying, I think, in dancing traditions or dancing communities that we don't stop dancing because we get old. We get old because we stop dancing. Which also reminds me of, uh, I think this is a saying from Nietzsche, that those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. <laughs> so I will stop there. Yeah. I have a question. We were talking about judgment. It always seemed to be negative. Is ju judge judgment include positive judgment or just something that isn't either? Like, for instance, I'm involved with food and I may look at somebody from a different culture and look at them immediately and think, oh, they must be a great cook. You know, is that judgment? It is. And so it's a good point. It's a good question. Do judgments go both ways? It's, we, yeah, we often talk about it as negative, but positive appraisals are also judgments. And at least when we're practicing this, you want to try to be neutral, at least when you're practicing this kind of mindfulness. Because liking something actually creates the dislikes. So it leads to judgment later on. By thinking this person is beautiful, I have to think other people are ugly. 
or unattractive or whatever it may, may be. And so the meditator actually starts to cultivate this quality of equanimity. I think if we could trade some of the judgments for curiosity, for an active interest in what is, the same is true for the crisis we find ourselves in. Just thinking positively about it isn't necessarily going to, to do anything for us. And telling ourselves that the worst is going to happen will increase our anxiety, which will tax our immune system by producing more stress hormones like cortisol and just make people more vulnerable to whatever germs are already there. But a neutral mind, and a mind that can access equanimity, can remain open to what is. So at least when we're practicing this, I think it, it's wise to suspend either direction. But you can factually describe things. I think that's the difference. Like we can say, this is really symmetrical, or this flat tire is going to make me late for work. But that it's the story of my life is a judgment. You know? My boss is gonna hate me, that it's a projection and a judgment. But that it's always something, this may be a judgment. But it may be true that I don't have a spare. It may be true that I do or don't have roadside assistance. So at least when practicing this non-judgment, you observe, describe circumstances to yourself factually, and then participate. And that would be how a person actually integrates this into, into the way they respond to life. Thank you. I agree with everything you said, and I've done a lot of meditation. I agree with most of it. You know, I was thinking about what you were saying about inspiration, and I have gotten to points in my life for two or three or four weeks where um, my heart is completely open. My, the feeling at that point is that I'm, I'm sort of totally present, completely, um, and I'm sort of but at that level, it's not to me that I'm sort of moving my arm, it's that I'm recreating the universe with my arm here and continue. And to me that's inspiration, that's creativity, that's where I go to get the music. Thank you for sharing that. I'd just like to add one thing when you were talking about open heartedness from moving your body in, the, in these, these you know, special ways. You may have noticed like if you do a yoga class or maybe the first time you did a yoga class, you might have cried. I know some people have cried. Or even if they didn't cry, sometimes people come out of a, of a yoga sequence feeling open-hearted, actually feeling like connected in the way you're describing. So in these studies of the meditative arts like yoga, martial arts, tai chi, there's also a type of neuroplasticity that happens in the side of the brain called the temporal parietal junction. These two lobes, the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe, give us our sense of position in time and space. And when this area is developed further, we actually expand our sense of where we are. And in moments of deep meditation, there are unique changes in that region of the brain where a person actually feels like, I don't end here. What you all do matters to me, to my well-being. The way that what the other cells are doing in my body matters. Not every cell for itself. The body would die if that's happened. And we see that sometimes 
in the larger organism of society, everybody operating not like a community, but more like pockets of carcinogenic activity. So when you are meditative, you actually feel this, this higher sense. I talk about higher consciousness and lower consciousness, not in terms of higher-minded thinking and lower-minded thinking, but actually levels of where, uh, levels of community. So when I say me, it, it's, it's actually more true that I'm talking about a community of cells and systems and the brain and the heart and so on. It's not like I know what the heart's doing right now. The heart's doing its own thing. I'm hallucinating to some extent a self in all of that. But similarly, in deeper and deeper levels of meditation of what you're describing, why can't it be possible that I feel we're all in this together, not just as an intellectual idea, but as something that could be directly perceived by the, by the meditator or by the seeker of wisdom or the truly inspired individual or mind. Yeah. I'd like to point out one other thing. When I'm at a point where there's just a tiny point of tension, the only thing I'm holding on to is the concept of time and space. Hmm. It feels like I need to have that concept to have a separation between self and what's Yep. This is what I come up to when I feel like that's disappearing. I Then I want to grab back onto that because I don't I don't know what that is. And I, my obstacle right now in meditation is fear around losing all of that and not knowing what happens <laughs> when I get to come back and have an... It's like a trip. It's like being on an, like a psychedelic trip and not knowing how long this is going to last. And so that's something that can freak people out. Yeah? That's funny. What you're saying brings me back to when I was a kid. My best friend and I would sit there and do it. My, my father was a psychologist and... He called it depersonalization, but I don't know what it was, so maybe that's exactly what it was. We would just sit there and talk about the fact that, are we really here? And our brains would just like <laughs> start freaking out. And then like we could do it on command. So like if I would go to a doctor and he was going to give me a shot, I could do that. So I wouldn't really feel the shot. But yet sometimes it kept happening without me wanting it to happen. And like there was one time I was in class and she saw me starting to like go there and she actually came up to me in class and like hit me because that we do that to each other to bring ourselves back the teachers like, mm-hmm. but i didn't ever really realize what that is but i guess that's exactly what it was we just didn't know what we were doing when we did don't we all need a break from ourselves <laughs> you know and our story i mean our story just i can't believe chapter three will i ever get over chapter three you know or whatever happened in the past. Of course, you know, that's easier said than done. But in meditation, you're not doing anything. You're just being. And you get relief. You get relief from that story. You know what else? Like you said, people scared about yeah. doing it. It was the same kind of feeling. Yeah, because we get attached to our story, too. I guess we get attached to the sense of self. Even if we're suffering, we get, we get attached to this protagonist in our own play. There was an interesting quote that I saw recently from Tilda Swinton that said, I love performing and acting because I'm not completely sure that there's a such thing as identity. I thought that was really interesting. So 
if you're not convinced that there's an identity, then act, you know, <laughs> then play. Bob Dylan said, we don't find ourselves, we create ourselves. Yeah. Um, I just wanted really, to uh, appreciate what you said about the intrinsic uh, value uh, uh, of painter and... Intrinsic motivation, yeah. And, yeah. Motivation. And as a painter, I mean, there's something about the visual out of all the senses, the visual aspect of creating um, a visual piece of work, which I do and I teach. And um, when I'm really, I'm, I'm motivated. So I want to be motivated. It's there all the time if I just get out of the way. Yeah. And then there's so much about this world that tells you you're good, you're this, you're that, you should do this with that. And like, all of a sudden it becomes a commodity and it breaks my heart. And Me too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard to be a pure, inspired human being. And that's always what I want to be. Mm. And it's always there in this world that's, you know, making me only as soon as they evaluate it. Can I say on top of that, that success is no proof of virtue or creativity or inspiration, but culturally, the cultural conditioning says otherwise. And that's really unfortunate. Tolstoy has this essay called What is Art? It's a little harsh, but I think he makes a good point when he said like one of the worst things that happened was that they became artists <laughs> because, because everyone has a right to creativity and inspiration, right? But because of the cultural conditioning you're talking about, people go, uh, I'll never be good at that. Like when I try, like in the hospitals, when I'm working with people, I want to like draw and paint. I'm, I'm, I'm just drawing stick people and stuff. And they'll all go, no, no, no. Like I haven't drawn since I was in kindergarten. I suck at it. I work with elders and they're like, oh, I can't do it. I'm like, oh, you're my favorite person to work with. Because of what you're saying, right? Yes, it's about, it's like we have a right to be in flow. We have a right to express what's inside. We have a right to complete this arc of evocation, transcendence, and actualization. Just like we have a right to make our own food. Imagine like, well, I can't go into the kitchen because I'll never be a gourmet chef. You know, we know we have to eat. We have to satisfy that hunger. And what you're talking about is on Maslow's Pyramid of Needs. Freedom and expression and meaning. And that's how we generate and, and convey and connect. So yes, I mean, I think it's right on. I agree, I feel it. It breaks my heart at times too. And it's hard for me to balance it, especially because, but, but that's why I love doing this, because it has nothing to do with that. You know, where like when I, in music, it has to be that at times, because it's like, there's a manager I gotta pay, there's the bandmates that, that gotta get paid from a show, and, and then suddenly it's like, oh, it's, it, it's not, we're not inspired right now, you know, and you, you gradually drift away from the whole reason you did it in the first place, you know. So, yes, yes, thank you. Any other thoughts? Or? Just um, thinking about some of the things that you've been saying and um, the whole idea of being in the flow and being a musician, relatively easy to understand, I think, when you're playing by yourself. But when you're with a 
group of other people. You, we know rope lines where when they're not playing music, they're just falling apart all the time. But yeah. when you're playing the music, so how does the connection get made between the individual? Yeah. Almost like one entity for the whole. That's a good question. In my study of bands, it seems like there's always leadership. They, they're rarely as democratic as, you know, um, as we'd like to think they are. And Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagle said, I just thought being in a band means you're always on the verge of breaking up. <laughs> That's what it is to be a rock band, you know? And it's true. So, I mean, bands, like, our band has been together for, well, this incarnation of the band has been together for almost a decade. And that is very old in band years. <laughs> But it's like catching lightning in a bottle. The same is true for like television shows. When they get the cast back together and you're watching like, eh, I mean, it doesn't have the same magic. Is there something that you can do before the show to make it happen? Well, see, see, what I think is, what I think you're describing is what I said earlier with inspired people are not conscientious of inspiration, right? But what happens after something's great? There's still maybe, there's still value in these things, but there will be a moment where a band catches fire. A lot of times the artist's albums don't quite seem to be as inspired. Because after an artist has had a lot of success, then they're doing formulas. Oh, Picasso said, I, I find myself imitating myself. <laughs> and, uh, Someone brought a, a painting that to someone. They said, "This is this is really a Picasso," and then Picasso said it wasn't his or something like that. But it turned out it was Picasso. And he said, well, it's not mine because it was just an imitation of me by me. And that brings up a whole bunch of other things, like somebody that fakes a great masterpiece, and yet you couldn't tell that it wasn't painted by the master himself. Sure. Is it still art in that sense? You know, because the inspiration wasn't there as a but how do you know when you look at it? Yeah, so that, that's a really deep philosophical question. And Tolstoy tries to tackle that in What is Art? And he goes on to say, Anna Karenina is not art. <laughs> he criticizes himself in this essay. And he like starts ruling out things he did. Masterpieces. Um, so I, mean, I, I don't think those lines ultimately matter, but we'll know when we're forcing something, when we're chasing the muse, or when we're just being receptive and the butterfly just comes and lands on our shoulder when we finally stop running after it, you know? Yeah. Do you think that, um, in general, if the mind is in service to the heart, is, is when the magic happens instead of the reverse? Yeah. I think when there's an integration of mind and heart and then the hands are the actualization, let's say. When these two parts of our, maybe, maybe we could say loosely that that's something like masculine and feminine energies within us. Intellect, I think, honestly, like, tries to own everything, mm -hmm. you know, and when it gets humbled and the heart is the leader yeah. is when um, intellect can be really in service of the way. 
And that's the combination of novelty and usefulness. If it's not really useful, you know, if it's just for ego or pride or something like that, I think it won't endure. Guys, bring up really wonderful thoughts, and I thank you for your questions.